0: Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond. With conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between, you'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Hey everyone, today we're joined by Marianne Chung, the Vice President of E-Commerce at AT AT&T. She's managed multi-billion dollar portfolios and has been in high level roles in tech, IT and transformation throughout her career. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this conversation is gonna be a good one because there are not many times when I get to talk to someone from a company that's 150 plus maybe years old and has gone through like a lot of transformations. And so I kind of just wanted to start there around what's it like being at a company like this that you've been at for i think 13 years right
1: yep been here 13 years and we're not quite at our 150th anniversary okay. but we're getting there um and whenever you can round pretty easily to 150 years old we'll just call it 150 and, and move on from there it's it's a fascinating place to be um You know, and it's, I walked into the company 13 years ago and probably didn't think this would be my observation, but the company is under constant change. Um, So, even having a legacy of 150 years old, it almost gives us more energy to take a look at what we're currently doing, what's working, what isn't, and how to transform ourselves on a daily basis, um, which squarely impacts the world that I live in in e commerce, uh, Mm -hmm. for sure.
0: So, I mean, what have you observed over like the past decade when it comes to transforming with the environment? And then for background, where this question is coming from is I'm reading a really good book right now called The Living Company, some kind of title like that. And it talks about companies that have been around for over a couple hundred years. And the biggest thing was seeing what was happening in the environment and kind of shifting quickly, of course. Um, But it makes me wonder, like, what have you seen AT&T do over this past decade to keep up with how quickly, you know, trends are coming and going and yeah, what consumers want.
1: Sure. Um, And rather going through a history lesson, because I mean, go on Wikipedia or your favorite news source, and you can read about all of the changes that we've undertaken in the past 10 years, which have been substantial. Maybe I'll touch a little bit on the how um, of what we look at when we're evaluating change and where we need to move quickly versus also prudently where you don't change. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes a lot of investment to transform a company that's not only 150 years old, nearly, um, but also a company of our scale. Uh, So those two things combined, both the uh, legacy nature of, of what we operate in, the rich history and reputation that the company has, as well as the scale at which we operate, both internally, our operations, of course, but more importantly, the scale of customers we touch on a regular basis There's constantly an evaluation of which changes are coming at us um, that we need to make sure we anticipate and move quickly uh, to be a part of, which changes can we make at our scale. You can influence a lot of change in industry in how customers experience our products and services and customers' lives for the better. Um, and picking and choosing those journeys of where to impart change in what we do is certainly a part of what we evaluate. And then what iterative change that's smaller that maybe doesn't show up in news articles or doesn't show up in earnings necessarily on a quarterly basis? What changes can we make that are small but really impactful? And how can we do those quickly? How can we learn from them? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's big bets, certainly, that's a part of our culture, but um, we're certainly learning how to make small iterative changes, too, that are equally important across the enterprise.
0: What are maybe some of the small bets that have had a big impact that maybe you were even kind of surprised by where you were like, oh, that was kind of like a little R&D project going on, but it had bigger outcomes than anticipated? (laughs)
1: I mean, some of my favorite things that we look at in the e-commerce space are little um, testing opportunities to get to know how our customers are thinking, what our customers are experiencing as they go through our journeys and back all of that up uh, through data. Um, So if I think of maybe a favorite test that we've done recently, I don't know. I mean, My favorites are always the really small ones um, where we have a hypothesis and we completely get proven wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And those have a big impact because of the lateral nature of learnings. I mean, even just learning messaging on content that works better can scale up into platforms, social media platforms and messaging platforms that go far beyond just the campaign that we were testing and really have ripple effects across how we talk to customers at scale. So it's really fun to see kind of small experiments that we do, small tests that we do online in particular, those learnings and how you can quickly apply them across an entire line of business, an entire customer base, and see those changes happen not just quickly, but in an in incredibly widespread manner. There's yeah. different tests and, and experiments that we've run, too, um, in, in changing. I'm thinking in, in previous roles that I've had as well, small changes in how you package inventory in how you present installation rules to customers, of making sure that everything's really clear by using the smallest amount of real estate possible that have really huge impacts, mm-hmm. especially as the environment changes changes around us. So there's there's a ton out there that's a lot of fun. But my favorites are always kind of the little ones that sneak up on you and then can yep. make a big difference. A drop of a pebble in a pond with big mm-hmm. ripples.
0: Yeah, I agree. We um, here at Mission we started implementing. Uh, like experimental sprints that we're doing in the coming year, and you have three months, like all the employees get to come, they get to pitch their idea. It has to have like hypothesis, of like how big of an impact will it have at the company? If it's just going to save like, you know, $1,000 a month, eh, okay, go find something bigger. And then that's my COO's job to kind of push, like, think bigger, think bigger. Um, but it's interesting watching how excited that gets people. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, okay, my team's really excited to do this, but how do you scale this excitement to? A large company to keep employees wanting to experiment and innovate um, and making it like intrinsically just something they want to do and not even having to, you know, always associate financial rewards or whatever, like maybe that comes. But how do you think about scaling that excitement around always experimenting, micro experiments um, to, you know, a company of AT&T size?
1: You know, I think most effective is digging deep. The best experimentation ideas that our team has certainly don't come from me. It comes from people who are interacting with our customers on a daily basis, whether that's within my team in in e-commerce or whether that's from our frontline representatives who are working with customers and centers and retail, thinking about problems that they see on a regular basis and working together to figure out what we can do differently. Um, Mm -hmm. And just asking the question, I think it's creating a space where people have permission to take time from whatever their day-to-day objective is. And especially if you're looking at kind of the P&L aspect of of what you're doing and you're an operator, um, sometimes you don't have permission to be creative on, you know, in the the nine hours or so that you're spending with the company on a daily basis or whatever that equates to. Carving out the time, asking a deliberate question um, and letting people just go for it Mm -hmm. is when you get some really interesting ideas and they're out there already. It's not like folks need a prompt of, um, here's a problem, give me your ideas to go solve it. Those ideas are out there. you just got to create a space for folks to bring them forward and then to make sure that those ideas can translate into tests and learnings um, that we can incorporate into the business. It's something that's um, incredibly valuable with a company of our size. There's problem solvers everywhere you yeah. just got to get the right problem in front of them and you've got to get their voices raised up to folks that can help implement those solutions.
0: Yeah, yeah, problem solvers everywhere. I mean, I can only imagine because the I mean, the spaces that you all are selling in is very different than a lot of companies that I have on the show where they're like they might have their website, um they might be on Amazon, you know, but they're not everywhere. And I feel like when I look at you guys like you really have to keep track of so many different outlets of where you're selling your products at. Maybe walk us through like that mix of how you guys go about selling. Like really, what is that omni-channel approach like for you all and how do you keep track of it all?
1: Sure. Um, if if I think about our sales environment, I refer to it as the tale of of two cities or the tale of two lines of business. And what I'm thinking about in particular, if I'll take a step back um, for everyone and Orient you know, around AT&T. My role has to do with our consumer and, and mass markets division. Um, so I think mostly consumer small businesses in there as well. Um, and really what are our two key product sets? You've got 5G connectivity through mobile devices um, and you have fiber connectivity, internet connectivity to consumers, households and small business locations. And those two markets, those two lines of business have very different channel mixes, have very different product purchasing flows that customers go through. Um, Obviously, different product offerings, but very different constructs of choices customers can make to optimize what they want to purchase with us. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll start with fiber because that's the simpler of the two. I have a fiber connection. I pick my speed. I pick my installation date. I have a question on um, equipment and how we're going to make sure that installation happens. And I'm good. That's the decision making that I have to go through. Um, if I think three years ago, that was very call center heavy um, activity and putting investment in both um, directing customers to digital as well as investment in the digital experience is really elevated. That is our main um, touch point in, mm-hmm. in how we sell. And there's a reason for it. Um, Installation's really expensive of fiber. And so a focus on making sure that you can have that really low cost of acquisition in an experience where customers are happy to buy online. Not many people want to call call centers anymore. And there's habits and reasons for that. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, But that's certainly something that um, we've been thinking really hard about is how do you digitize that experience? How do you meet customers where they want to be and just make that as easy and seamless as possible? Both in the purchase experience, to swiping a credit card, as well as the onboarding experience that follows it. Um, so that's that's kind of our digital first primary example in the sales space of of what good looks like. Mm-hmm. On the mobility side, you have a very retail oriented space. People don't think of AT and T as a retailer necessarily, but that's a dominant sales channel that we have. And I'd encourage the audience to think about the last time you purchased with a a cell phone carrier. A mobility carrier, you probably had more than one line. You probably have a phone number that you wanted to keep. You might have had new devices that you wanted to add, but there's, I mean, our phones are our lives right now. All of the data that I care about is sitting on my phone. All of the numbers that I care about that I don't have memorized anymore, my way of reaching people that I love and that depend on me are all on that device, and it better show up seamlessly when I make that purchase. If you have multiple lines you're bringing on, if you have a number that you want to keep or multiple numbers that you want to keep, you have to pick your plans. You have to pick any new devices that you want to bring on. You've got to make sure all of that, uh, those customer preferences are, are protected. And we have a bunch of choices that you can add on as well to make sure that that robust portfolio of services is still what looks good for you. That's a relatively complicated purchase experience when you compare that to fiber. So it's it's a very different makeup. It's a very different digital consideration when we're thinking about that. There's a reason why customers go into stores um, to make sure that that purchase uh, happens seamlessly. And then, of course, there's our customer base. A lot of our transactions on the mobility side are customers upgrading as existing customers that are upgrading devices or making uh, plan changes, which we have looked really deeply at opportunities to digitize and make simple um, it's a simpler transaction than bringing brand new customers, new accounts, multi lines on at one time. Mm, um, so it's, it's fun to kind of see where those two lines of business converge from a purchase experience perspective, um, how the omni channel makeup of how customers consider and research their purchase decisions uh, converge, but also very much are different in those two spaces. And then, of course, deliver the right experience digitally in our case. Um, to allow customers to research and hopefully purchase Mm -hmm. online.
0: That's good. I mean, this is a space that I've always thought like, okay, do I need to be here? Do I really need to come in for this maybe? Or like, do I actually need to call someone for this? So, If you were to pull out a crystal ball, what are maybe areas over the next five years where you're like, AI will probably replace this? Like we already, you know, we're not going to need maybe whatever it may be. I mean, I'm even thinking like, do we really need retail locations or like, how long will it be until we get it where it's like, oh yeah, they just, they send me this. I'm good to go. It's such a good experience online. I, for the most part, don't really need someone, you know, to handhold me through it or help me because everything's just going so flawlessly. But yeah. what do you think is to come? And it doesn't have to be about at You can just predict this overall industry if you would like.
1: You know, I think with AI and technology advances, personalization and the Immense amount of facts that people have about me, or at least facts that people have about people that behave similar similarly to the way that I do, um, streamlines purchase experiences in really meaningful ways if you can get that model mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, and so getting more and more data that completes those models and makes purchasing something where I don't have to go through dozens of iterations of what we can offer customers um, using AT mobility as an example. But really looking at the three that are probably most valuable to me and then making predictions based on who I am that shortcut that purchase experience is something that I think we're going to continue to see refined over and over and over again. And there's ways to do that that mitigate security concerns folks have about data sharing and so forth, um, where that really is model driven, but can be incredibly accurate um, in, in targeting customers. An interesting thing um, that that we think about a lot is why are customers going into physical locations today or why are customers calling physical locations today for purchases? Um, And some of it's product and offer complexity that will absolutely simplify over time, um, Mm -hmm. at least in our industry. um, And we're making changes in that regard um, for sure. But a lot of it's reassurance. And so cracking the nut on how you speak to customers in a way that is promoting confidence in what they're purchasing, especially for really big ticket items um, that have a subscription based behind them. So TVs can be really expensive. People buy those online all the time insurance has been digitized in in many ways but it's when you have a really big upfront purchase as well as a pretty substantial recurring cost on on the back end it's a big commitment for customers and sometimes i just want to hear from somebody did i do this right did i click all the boxes is this the best deal that i can be getting it's the best one that i found and the answer a lot of the time is yeah you did great mm-hmm. or Here's this one thing that we think you should consider that maybe you didn't see otherwise. And the more we can figure out how to have digitized experiences that meet customers in that space of hesitation or lack of confidence um, is something that is fascinating to me. It used to be right at the beginning of the journey, I choose to call or I choose to go in the store. I'm not even going to go online. And, And pieces of that journey are slowly becoming more and more digitized as we build confidence. But at least I find in where do I go, physical locations, where do I go to shop where I could have gone digitally, physical goods certainly have something to do with that. But a lot of it is the confidence that I'm making the purchase decision right in that first moment. because um, I don't want to waste my time and go back and have to, to redo things, even if it's of no cost to me. Mm-hmm. Cracking that confidence code is, is something that's, um, that we've got our eye on for sure.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely something that's key in this like space. I mean, I think about why I switched to AT&T from, let's call it a larger competitor, large competitor. It was because like the customer service and actually knowing that things were right and easy and I didn't have to call and check in on things all the time or like, I mean, so many issues. But outside of just the customer service piece, which I think is huge in this space, like how do you keep customers happy when a lot of times when people are calling, they're pro- they could be frustrated or mm-hmm. confused. Outside of that, how do you differentiate yourself from competitors? Because you kind of see language sometimes where it's like all like the competitors are all kind of starting to use similar language. and You're like, wait, you're all equally as good when it comes to coverage and this and that. So how do you set yourself apart and kind of show people all this stuff that you're doing behind the scenes to really make, you know, this whole customer buying experience way better? Sure.
1: Um, again, a uh, tale of two cities on the on the sales side. In selling fiber, we have an exceptional product. Um, Mm -hmm. The technology itself underlying is very much differentiated from some of our competitors in that space and highlighting what that means for customers, where the word fiber doesn't necessarily hold its own inherent value. um, is something that we spend a good amount of time on. So what language can you use that resonates with customers where fiber becomes the differentiator? And you also have simplicity across the board for both fiber as well as in our wireless space of what that go-to-market looks like. So recently, um, I guess it's not so recent anymore, but almost a year ago, we changed our pricing construct on the fiber side um, to get rid of some of the complexity that historically has been a part of the industry and having that more simple experience. It's a simpler offer to put in front of customers and to explain um, digitally instead mm-hmm. of having a person go through all of the ins and outs of what the offer entails is something that absolutely is differentiating on, on the fiber side. You've got a great product. You want to make sure the quality is exceptional. You want to make sure it's really easy to purchase, not go through the experience um, on its own, but also understand what you're purchasing and what you're signing up for on an on a ongoing basis Um, That's how we've thought about differentiating a couple of the ways we've thought about differentiating not all of them um, on the fiber side. And on mobility, we've had our our campaign going on for a while best deals for everyone, speaking not just to the acquisition side um, of customers and clarity on the deals that are available to folks that are not a part of the AT&T family, but also that those deals are available to our existing customers. And having that transparency for both existing and new customers in the mobility space where you tend to be with a carrier for a good amount of time. I add family members to my account. I'm bringing on, uh, I have new purchase experiences by bringing on new members of the family, new devices um, and having that be something, those deals be something that I have access to and not having to tease through, is this relevant for me? I saw this thing that you guys were talking about on the TV or in this radio ad or in what I saw on social media But having that be transparent to the entire base, too, has been something that has increased customer trust. It simplified the purchase experience of trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is it that I am buying and is is that what's relevant for me? Um, And it has allowed us to really form um, a differentiated brand message um, with our our existing customers in that form of of trust and reliability, um, hearing that message consistency. That's not the only thing that you need to do uh, to build trust and reliability, of course, with your customers. And and that's where we have a lot of focus right now across the board in our product product sets on the consumer side is taking a look at how we follow that through. If you start the purchase off right, start the journey off right and lifecycle off right with a more simplified, clear message, fewer gotchas in what that onboarding process looks like and a lot of clarity up front, you've got to make sure that the customer experience through the rest of the life cycle is consistent as well. And so we're digging in pretty substantially on the digital side to make sure that experiences that have frustrated customers may be in in previous memory and customers are with us for years, in some cases decades, um, and customers have long memories. We've got ways of tackling those friction points across the board for folks and especially in areas where customers um, interact with us on a regular basis billing Mm -hmm. for example um, monthly you've got to nail that that's a pretty regular touch point between us and our customers ripping that friction out is really important to keep that follow-through there
0: what do you think the time frame is from when a like when a frustrating event happens like how long until they forget i mean i think about myself i feel like i'm like a goldfish i'm like mad about something and then maybe like a couple years later I'm like oh, okay I'll try it again <laughs> So, like how have you guys seen any like data that shows like after amount this amount of time you can actually maybe go and save that previous customer like or bring them back or something
1: you know I, I think if you get it right um, even if you mess up it's like companies mess up it happens um, we're certainly not immune to that no company is if you follow up really quickly and you make it right for the customer forgiveness happens really fast mm-hmm um, and making sure that that's done, not just promptly, but thoroughly to, co- to correct a customer issue, um, that, that has been proven, not just for us, but in, in studies all over the place of, of really recovering from when something goes wrong, but also even going above and beyond to build confidence with customers yeah. um, when those events happen. When you do have something that goes wrong and you didn't fix it right um, immediately, and you have that existing experience. Um, acknowledging that helps as well. So continuing to have a history with your customer, having that data be shared in an omni-channel fashion, knowing what happened, even if you didn't address it day one, but recognizing that it existed, um, and continuing to try to make right for the customer when you do interact with them again um, is is something that's important too. So we've invested a lot of energy in the omni-channel nature of understanding where our customers have come from um, and making sure that you're continuing to honor that history and and uh, put the right things in front of customers at the right time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the history piece that you just mentioned is something that I think so many other companies should focus on. I mean, I'm thinking about different credit cards, companies, banks, whatever, where I mean, if you're on the phone and you're hitting zero a thousand times, someone should know that I was frustrated at one point in my life while calling. And for someone to just get them and it's like the fourth or fifth person I talked to and just, oh, hey, how's it going? Not great. I just hit zero a thousand times to try and get someone. and I still got rerouted a million times. But I always think like, how can, yeah, how is that lost so many times still to this day of not knowing maybe all the steps? of like what it took to even get to that one person or how many other people I had talked to and, oh, I'll take notes on your file. And then they don't. It's just, that it's interesting seeing where some industries have like moved quickly to make sure they understand that whole customer through and through. And then other ones who haven't really like, you know, worried too much about keeping track of that history.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, we obsess about looking at the digital channel um, for our existing customers through the lens as well of how our customers are interacting with. Our call centers. It's a really tight partnership between our group and our centers group, um, as well as the folks that run all of the infrastructure around the IVR. And we're going through technology transformations um, in this space that that will help. Um, but in the meantime, you don't just wait for technology to solve your issues. There is so much data mm-hmm. available to a company like AT and Um, in varying degrees of being clean and usable, of being real time, of being qualitative and quantitative um, and being digestible, but aggregating what you know about these experiences and linking them together, both getting really actionable, crisp insights as well as as kind of directional hints um, that help you form hypotheses about where you can go make experiences better, We know that customers don't usually just have a behavior that puts them in a pure call center context or a pure digital context. You Mm -hmm. move between the two based on what your issue is, your sense of urgency is, whether you need that confirmation at the end of did I get everything right? I did. I got myself 90 percent of the way there, but I need you to tell me that there's nothing else I need to go do. Continuing to monitor that is, is something that's been really valuable, and there is still a ton more opportunity in that space for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you mentioned call centers, and I remember we wanted to talk about that earlier. Tell me what you think about the future of call centers. Where do you think it's headed?
1: Sure. You've probably read, just as I have, some companies making pretty bold moves in this space, looking at their call center operations, dramatically reducing it. And we acknowledge that, I mean, and just thinking personally, there's a whole lot of call center interactions I've had in my life where I would prefer to have not needed to have them. Same. Um, yep. <laughs> and that gets down to you know the fundamentals of what we've talked about. It's simplifying the experience. It's figuring out where those transactions are most likely to happen and digitizing the heck out of them. Once they're digitized and available to customers, make sure that you can tell customers that are recurring that, hey, this might not have worked for you three months ago or three years ago, but you can do that online now. And it's actually really easy. Um, So the education piece is really important there too. Um, But with a company as complex as ours, with a diverse customer base that we have, with customers that have been on products and services in some cases for decades, Um, The call center is not going away tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I don't know in our call center strategy, there's other folks you can talk to, but just, you know, crystal ball out in the air. That's going to be a consistent point of contact for customers that are available, make us available to them for what functions, for what journeys, for what transactions that will change over time as we continue to invest. Um, engage where those experiences are meaningful versus where they really need to be digitized, and we can help um, get customers to those those digital experiences. But for at least the foreseeable few years ahead of us, they're not going to go anywhere. Um, there's a lot of use cases that we have for call centers, and it's carving out those opportunities to increase digital mix in a very aggressive way, which is what customers are craving. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely where our mindset is, Um, but not eliminating them entirely before their time and before um, customers cease to need them. It's an important part of getting those recovery times right, as we talked about previously. When something goes wrong and it's really complicated, I've got a billing history with you of three years and something happened that impacts multiple sets of products, like I just need to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. And when those types of things happen, we want to make sure we're there for customers that we can handle those in hopefully an omni-channel fashion. There's a bunch of that we can probably handle digitally, but when you need a human to intervene, we want that human to be available to customers. It's a spectrum, and it's going to shift over time of kind of what the mix of that spectrum looks like between digitization and the human element, but the human element of our business is really meaningful and is not uh, going anywhere, dissolving into space um, in the near future.
0: Yeah, I definitely think it's important to be able to get through when you want to. I mean, when thinking about, I worked next to the team at Google who worked in the AI space, and I mean, now the video is trending more than it ever did in 2017 around them calling and making restaurant reservations and just doing that automatically. And it was interesting thinking about how that could transform so many spaces if done well at like a niche level where, you know, maybe this is like you just train data all around phone upgrades, or you just train a data set around billing and all, you know, any customer issues. It's like such niche level training data sets that it probably will work better eventually one day than any human you know, who's having to scan the whole business and think, okay, is it this? Is it that? Where do I route you versus, okay, I'm, this is your problem. That's all I'm trained on. Like, that's all this bot is trained on. It seems like a very interesting space to watch. And then, yeah, you will probably, every once in a while, it's like, just let me talk to someone. Okay. But it seems like a, a lot of efficiencies are to come as this, you know, technology gets explored more and yet yeah, can just be optimized to really help people easily. Cause I know when I was watching, that team back in the day, I was like, oh, I feel like they're better than me. And I used to work at a restaurant and I was not as good at booking as this, you know, AI is. So huh, you can do that. <laughs> well, and with
1: complex portfolios, I mean, mm-hmm. the data we have available to us, the data we have available in our existing customers that our customers expect us to know about them. Um, and then being able to match that with plan options, with upgrades, with features that we have available to customers, that's one of our uh, big projects that we're looking at for this year is how do we get really smart at recommending what good looks like for customers so you don't have to know what all of the options are, compare it all on your own. We can provide that for you if you're interested in in what those comparisons look like, but we should be able to offer to you recommendations of how to optimize your services with us and do it at the right time in your journey and make it really easy for you to go through that research phase and then just a one click, upgrade into uh, what it is that you've chosen to change about your plan. And that's absolutely something we should be able to do. You know, calling in is painful for that. You can't look at a bunch of stuff visually and compare what all of the different options are. Um, And so being able to do that in a highly digitized, highly automated manner with what we know about customers is it's a win-win. Customers don't want to wade through all that stuff either. Like, get me to where I need to go. Give me, me what I need so I can make sure that is something that I do want to change about my service with you. Let me do a one-click yes and then let me move on and get the billing right on the other end so that I see what I should expect to see in my in my next bill and everything looks the way that it needs to. And I can always come back if I need to look at more. Uh, but yeah, there's there's opportunities all over the place. Um, automation is something that is continues to have opportunities thrown in front of us. Um, the, if we had all the time and resources available to us on the planet, we could solve all of them. But there is a massive backlog of opportunity in the automation space using all of the data we have available to make things easier for us and for our customers. And it's win-win. Mm-hmm.
0: I love it. Are there any subsets or like groups that you're maybe going after for the first time or marketing to that maybe are newer? I mean, I heard you mention small business owners, which I'm like, hey, if y'all were to, were to have come to me, I mean, I already used you guys, but if you were like, you need fiber there, it's already can be installed or it already was previously, and you already have it at your house. And if you add this or an employee phone, it'll only be this much more money. Like, if it's just a package and it's just like, oh, okay, that does make sense actually. Like, it would be great. But are there groups like that that maybe you haven't gone after in the past that is like newer? Or have you always, yeah, is it kind of the same customers that you're targeting?
1: Yeah, I'd say on the newer side, not brand new, but on the newer side, it's certainly a different look at small businesses. with the growth growth rate that small businesses have had, um, and with our availability um, for fiber um, in more places than we've ever had before, there's certainly an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Um, And figuring out, teasing out how small businesses, with our products and services in particular, look more like consumers or more like how we've traditionally marketed to business customers and how that changes, how to make sure we can identify where the consumer side is true, whether the more business side is true, whether we need something totally different, has been a ton of testing um, that's gone in this space. And just looking at it from an e-commerce perspective in messaging and content in the buy flow that we have and how we attract customers through the funnel into the buy flow where do we where do we have assumptions that are incorrect about where small businesses look and feel like small businesses when really we can use our momentum on the consumer side and vice versa
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: how do you ingest those learnings and that data into what your targeting looks like that's something that's still ripe for opportunity uh, for us i think Um, But we're learning a ton in that space um, and have put put some energy behind it. The other thing that isn't necessarily new, but we're certainly continuing to push on creative ways of, of looking at customers is this dichotomy between a household that is our customer on the fiber side and an account, which is our customer on the mobility side. For many of you all listening, you probably have or know of folks that have mobility accounts where it isn't just your family. You might share your mobility account with a roommate. You might share your fiber account with a roommate, actually. Um, But you probably have a multitude of folks that make up your mobility account that have nothing to do with sharing an address. And so as we're looking at benefits for our customers to both have mobility and fiber services with us, which there are benefits to having both, how do you think about that when it's a very different customer makeup on one side and the other? and one is an address-based and one is, is account-based. Um, so there's certainly different ways that we're testing and learning in that regard, um, as well as testing and learning and how to make sure that as customers go through their life cycle with us in one product or another, you can get those messages to them at the right times. There are wrong times to message um, purchasing another item or another line of business with a with customer, but those right times when customers are interacting with us digitally which is our primary channel of interaction um, once we have an existing customer with us. How do you make sure that that value is known and that you're talking to the right person who's coming in to manage their account?
0: Hmm, man, so many opportunities at AT&T. I feel like we could just sit here and go through all your projects and I would be highly intrigued. But I do want to ask the question, what keeps you excited in this space? What, what has you waking up where you're like, well, oh, I'm really excited to go into work today and do this?
1: It kind of goes back to where we started the conversation. Um, again, 13 years ago, I walked into the company and I did not expect change to be one of the primary descriptors that I'd use to talk about what we do here and what it feels uh, like to work at at t Does that mean that some things aren't stagnant, need to be challenged more heavily than others? Of course not. Um, but we're constantly looking at changing our operations for the better, at looking at new ways of competing in highly competitive industries. Um, And changing just the voice of how we speak to customers and making sure that we're staying relevant um, across multiple segments of folks and getting really specific about what not to change to change isn't always good when things are working, don't touch it until the right time to reinvest and, and rethink that experience. So it's always something change is a constant around here and making sure that we're pushing ourselves really hard to remain relevant. 150-year-old company remaining very relevant um, to customers. And in the digital space in particular, our competitors and how customers' expectations are set in digital have nothing to do with our traditional telco competitors. Mm -hmm. Your expectations are set by the digital giants of the world and by the digital interactions you have on a regular basis with a bunch of different companies. We've got to stay relevant in that space, which requires constant change and reevaluation of who you are. And if that doesn't get you energized, I don't know what will. We've got great products and services. We've got a change mindset. And you have a ton of opportunity of improvement that you can ingest and uh, impart into this ecosystem on a daily basis. It's a problem of not having enough hours in the day, um, which gets down to prioritization. But there's always more to be done. And that's really energizing.
0: Yeah, amazing. Well, Marian, this has been an awesome chat. Thank you for jumping on the show and sharing what you're up to at AT&T. Where can our listeners and viewers find out more about you and your work? If you want to find out more
1: about me, uh, you can always uh, go to LinkedIn. Uh, that's where probably you'll see um, the most amount of information on my profile. And if you want to learn more about what we do, what I do in particular, go to att.com and explore around. Um, And if you're an existing customer, thanks for your business, log in and see what digital capabilities we've uh, launched in the past even few weeks, probably that you might not be aware of. So looking forward to your feedback, if you have any, and thanks for listening today. Thank
0: you. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.